Please turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. And let's begin with verse 7. If you're a guest here this morning, thank you for coming. We have been preaching through the book of Ephesians. And we are in now chapter 3, verse 7. And before I begin verse 7, let me just explain here to us that what's happened in in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 to 13, is that Paul is talking about the mystery of God, God's mystery. And in the first six verses, he reveals that mystery. What is the mystery of God? And now in verses 7 to 13, he's going to reveal what it means to be a servant of that ministry, to be a servant of the gospel. So if if you look at verses 1 to 6, it's the mystery of God, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now in verses 7 to 13, it's the steward of the mystery of God. Paul being the steward, another word for steward would be servant or minister. But it's, what does it mean to be a, a servant of this gospel? So that's, that's what this, the message is this morning. What does it mean to be a servant of this gospel? We've already seen what the gospel is. But what does it mean to be a servant of the gospel? So we're going to pick it up in verse 7. Verse 7 is sort of a transitional verse. It's going to point back a little bit to what is this mystery of the gospel. And it's going to point forward to what does it mean to be a servant of the gospel. What does it mean to be a steward of the gospel, a minister of the gospel. So if you're there, Ephesians 3, verse 7. Of this gospel... I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. Now that word minister there in verse 7, that's the the, the Greek word diakonos, which we get our English word deacon from. And really a diakonos is a minister, but you could also translate it a servant. In fact, if you have an NIV Bible, I believe it does translate that word servant. So what does it mean to be a servant of the gospel? Paul is saying, I'm a minister of the gospel. I'm a diakonos of the gospel. I'm a servant of the gospel. What does that mean? So he's going to explore that now with us in these next verses. So verse 7 is that transitional verse. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. Now verse 8. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ. Bentley talked about those unsearchable riches. We sang about those unsearchable riches. We are looking to, to peer into the glories of Calvary, as Zeke led us in that song, and over and over, Lord, let me, let me look, let, let, me, let me view the glories of Calvary. These are these unsearchable riches, folks. I mean, think of the irony of that. Paul says, I want to preach what is unsearchable. Because I can preach it, And the knowledge I have is true knowledge, though it's not going to be comprehensive knowledge. There's so much more to know. But I'm going to start now preaching the unsearchable riches, these riches that are so deep. Next week, Bentley's going to preach about this this prayer of Paul that we would know this love that is so deep, so powerful, so awesome. So Paul says, I'm going to be a good steward of the gospel. How am I going to do that? Because I'm going to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Look at verse 9. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery. Remember the mystery is what this is all about here. Talking about mystery here. What is the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Father, I ask you to help me focus now. Lord, I ask you to take every distraction away from all of us. Lord, I pray that your word would go and penetrate hearts like a laser beam directed right to its target. That your spirit would illuminate and open the eyes of those who have been blinded to these truths. Some maybe all their lives. Some maybe are in a fog. These truths are obscured. 
Lord, would you by your spirit, the fresh wind of your spirit, blow away the fog? Lord, much as you did Friday night at the youth prayer meeting, would you revive hearts? Would you, would you bring us to a place of seeing you afresh and anew? Seeing your love, seeing your gospel. Lord, peering into the unsearchable riches of Christ and help me to preach them to my friends clearly. Oh God, in Jesus' name, amen. So the mystery of the gospel has been revealed in verses 1 to 6. And now in verses 7 to 13, we're going to talk about what does it mean to be a steward or a servant of these mysteries. And I I was thinking of an illustration for that. And and here's the thought that came to me. When, When someone is either commissioned as an officer in the army, or someone is going to take an oath of office, for example, our president, if you remember whenever the president is sworn in every four years, it's a big deal, and he stands on the steps of the Capitol building, and the, the Supreme Court justice, the main justice is there in his, in his robes, and he swears an allegiance. He puts his hand on the Bible, and he, and he makes an oath. He swears, and what, is, what does he say? It's the same thing that an officer says when he's commissioned in the military, whether it's the Army, the Air Force, the Marines, the Navy. He says, I swear to defend and uphold the Constitution of the United States of America. To defend and uphold the Constitution of the United States of America. And so he becomes, in a sense, a servant of this Constitution. He becomes a a public servant. I think even of of the police officers that are in our church. I think of uh, Chris and and Hector and um, uh, Jim, who's now in the church plant. But these guys are public servants. They are servants of the public good. As an officer, you, you, you defend the Constitution. And in this passage, not only is Paul a servant of the gospel in the sense that he defends the gospel, but he's going to propagate the gospel. He's going to, he's going to proclaim the gospel. And so, and so the question here in this text is, what does it mean to be a servant of the gospel? That's the driving question of the text. What does it mean to be a servant of the gospel? We've been, listen, Paul is saying, I have been given this trust. It's precious. It's as if I were a trustee of monies that were given perhaps to a younger person. And until they turned 18, I am the trustee of these great riches. And, and I need to be faithful in that trust so that at the appropriate time I can disperse those funds. Well, Paul is saying, I have been given a trust, this mystery of the gospel. God's mystery has been entrusted to me so that I might then entrust it to you and you might entrust it to others. We have something that is so valuable, folks. We are servants of the gospel. Paul, yes, is a unique case. He is an apostle. We are not. But, like Paul, we are servants of the gospel. And we have a tremendous amount of riches that has been entrusted to us. And what we do with those riches, how we fulfill, how we answer this question matters now and matters into eternity. And I would say the Bible says it's the most important thing for you. More important than how you handle your present physical finances or your family or your home or your career or your education. These are all very important things. I want you to be good, faithful stewards. I believe that if you're a good servant, a good steward, you can be trusted with things in the small things. You can be trusted in the large. But listen, all that stuff will pass away. All of it. This is eternal. This is God's purpose. This is the most important thing you need to answer about your life. Are you a servant of the gospel? And what kind of servant are you of that gospel? So, to answer that question, let us jump now back into verse 7. So what does it mean to be a servant of the gospel? Well, I believe this is the first thing it means. A servant of the gospel is one who is called by God. God's grace. Point one. A servant of the gospel. What does it mean to be a servant of the gospel? Point one. It's one who is called by God's grace. Look at verses seven and eight again. 
of this gospel, I was made a minister. That's passive. He was chosen to be a minister. God was the initiator. I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. So a servant of God's, of the gospel, is a man or a woman that has been given something. Listen, before you can serve the gospel, before you can be a steward of the gospel, you first have to understand the gospel. And if you're here this morning and you don't understand the gospel, the gospel's never reached into your heart. You do not understand the riches, these riches of Christ. Oh friend, listen carefully. You will hear it throughout this sermon. There is something here that's so important, so rich, so amazing. It's the reason I'm standing here and preaching. It's the reason these folks are sitting here and they've come this morning to be part of the church. We've got to receive it. And notice that we receive it by grace. We're we're servants. We're ministers of this gospel by grace. What does that mean? Well, grace, firstly, is a gift. It's something that I don't earn. It's something that God gives to me. I want you to jump back to verse 2. You will notice that Paul in verse 2 says, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship, there's that word stewardship, a servant, a steward, a trustee, of God's grace that was given to me for you. So the grace is what God gives us to give to others. And here's something I felt from the Lord for all of us. As we think about being servants of the gospel, we can often feel very weak. We can feel very inadequate. Oh, friend, I want to encourage you with the scripture right here when it's talking about God's grace. You can just jot it down if you're taking notes. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. It's a wonderful passage. It's the passage that really encourage us to plant out a new church, even though our church would not be necessarily large or wealthy. But this is what we felt from God. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9 says this. But he, God, said to me, and this is Paul writing, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul then says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power, this is God speaking to Paul, is made perfect in weakness. May may the grace of God fill you with power as you tremble at this call to be a servant of the gospel. To be a servant of the gospel. And notice now verse 8. One who is called by God's grace is amazed by God's grace. Look what Paul says in verse 8. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace, there's that word again, this grace was given. This grace was given. Paul, Paul stood amazed that God would call him to be a servant of the gospel. He couldn't believe it. He just couldn't believe it. Now, I've got to remind you of something. Paul was in a prison when he wrote this. Paul was probably already three years plus in a prison in Rome. Paul was in a prison in Rome, handcuffed to a Roman soldier for three plus years. Now, I'm not meaning to disrespect any Roman soldiers, but I imagine they might not be the most pleasant individuals in the world. Let's just start with body odor. Let's move on that they're taught to kill. Three plus years. We don't know if he suffered abuse at their hands. There may have been some soldiers, in fact, probably were, that heard the gospel and and the Lord saved them. There's probably Roman soldiers in heaven right now. And they said, how did you get here? I was handcuffed to Paul for about a year. (laughs) You can't go where you want to go. Uh, When you want some privacy, there he is. 
You cannot do what you want to do. He's a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Not that soldier, not of Caesar. He's a prisoner of Christ Jesus. That's what it says in verse 1 of chapter 3. For the sake of those Gentiles, because he's a servant of the gospel, and he's amazed at the privilege. Sadly, that does not describe me all the time. A lot of the time, but not all the time. I complain about the Roman soldier I'm handcuffed to. Who's your Roman soldier? Where has the gospel taken you that maybe you didn't want to go and united you with someone maybe you don't want to be united with? (laughs) Paul counted it an amazing privilege. Why, guys? Because he saw the unsearchable riches of the gospel. He saw that he was an enemy of God and that he was destined for wrath and death. He had no hope. He was without God. Though he was a Jew, he knew that the law failed him in trying to gain him uh, access and acceptance by God. And he knew the awesome, wonderful feeling of Jesus forgiving his sins. Do you? To you. That's what fills us with amazement. A servant of the gospel is called by God's grace, amazed by God's grace. Would you put up the quote that's right after this? I think it's the next slide. This is some, a quote from Corey Smidgen. I just thought it was so good. I just wanted to share it with you. Apologize, it's a little small there on the screen, but it is going to be posted online, so no need to copy it down. There'll be a copy online. Sort of a half prayer here. Lord, May we cultivate wonder that we have the opportunity to serve the church for which you died. Now just read Servant of the Gospel. This is a joyful privilege. God has seen our willingness to go with him into the work of the ministry. It is not up to us to build Palm Vista Community Church as a great church or make disciples of anyone. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. When we trust ourselves, we become intense and lack joy. Can I just say this morning, I was intense and I lacked joy. Just being real. My buddy Marcos called me on it, which that's why I love Marcos most of the time. He's my Roman soldier. No, 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 no. He's not. He's not. He's not. He's not. He invites me into his man cave and we have lots of fun there, so he's my buddy. Man cave? He's translating? Oh, good. And he translates for me. You know, when I came in, Marco said to me, he goes, he goes, oh, he's got his pastor's face on. Oh, I know what that means. You know what that means? That means that Alpino at that moment is trusting in himself and becoming intense and lacking joy. My other buddy, Sergio, uh, often says to me, he goes, you know, I know when you have that face, when you're talking to me and your eyes are wandering to others in the hallway. And you just, you have that intensity. It's Sunday morning. Listen, I've got to make it happen. I've got to make sure everything's right. I'm checking all the details. Meanwhile, the guy I'm talking to is like wondering, hey, hello, I'm over here, Al. I think, I think Robbie's wife, Tiffany, was there. And she goes, I just blew right by her. She goes, hello, you're going to say hi? <laughs> Oops, sorry. They're right. They're right. I mean, I'm just confessing to you. We're, we're all tempted in this, aren't we? We are the minister of God here this morning. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you can't do squat, Al. Relax. Trust God. The, the, the last part of this quote I love. But as our confidence in the power of the Holy Spirit to build Palm Vista Community Church and make disciples grows, so does our joy. May our service increasingly be filled with grace. Mine wasn't this morning. I want it to be more so. Humility and joy. If it applied to Paul, it applies to me. I'm no different than you. I just happen to be called to serve this church by preaching. It does not make me better than you at all. At all. How has God called you to serve? Do you serve trusting Him with joy, humility, and grace? When we don't, then it puts the finger on us and on our hearts that we're not trusting him to do it. We're trying to make it happen. And usually, I, that's when I sin the worst. Doing God's work. 
trying to make it happen. Oh, God, you make it happen. I'm just your servant. And what a privilege as I'm chained to this Roman guard for three plus years. Didn't plan on going to Rome. Here I am. And here is that ugly guard with bad breath. And probably hasn't showered in a long time. They probably never showered back then. But I'm here. Chained him. Chained to him. I cannot go where I want to go. And I have, it's a privilege. And he writes in verse 8. Now do you get this? What a privilege. I can't believe that to me, the very least of all the saints, the grace was given to preach to the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ. And that's why he was in prison. Don't let that one slide by you. You will miss God's wisdom here. The very thing that lands him in prison for three plus years, he's rejoicing at the privilege of doing. He's not saying, God, I hope you are impressed and privileged that I chose to preach it, therefore I'm here. No, no, no. He's saying, thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for this Roman guard. Thank you that I live in a squalor in Rome and some apartment complexes that are made for prisoners and who knows how good or how bad he had it. Second thing now that he's called to do, go back to the previous slide because we're still on point one. Second thing that he's called to do as a, a, by the grace of God, I want you to just look carefully here. He's called to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. I just alluded to that in verse eight. You see that there? This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. That word unsearchable is an amazing word. It's often used in the Old Testament when describing God. For example, Job would say that, as for me, I would seek God, and to God would I commit my cause, who, ha- who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. Later on in Job, he says, God who does great things beyond searching out. In Romans eleven thirteen. Paul uses this phrase, unsearchable, to describe God's wisdom and knowledge. Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. What are the unsearchable riches of Christ that Paul is preaching? Well, it's the very things we've been studying the last two or three weeks. The fact that Christ is the second person of the Trinity. He is God. He is man. He is Redeemer. He's the suffering servant of Isaiah. He's the Messiah of the Old Testament Jew who has come now to reunite Jew and Gentile in one body through his blood, through his death, into one new man, the church. Unsearchable riches. These unsearchable riches for us Gentiles means once we who were strangers to the promises and aliens to the household of God have now been given the promises. We're now part of God's household. Unsearchable riches. And though Paul is unique in that he's an apostle, we share the same calling by God's grace to preach these unsearchable riches. Now point two. A servant of the gospel is not only one who's been called by God's grace, but one who is committed to God's plan. Committed to God's plan. Now I want you to notice, look at the the transition here from verse 8 to verse 9. At the end of verse 8 it says, This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, comma. The grace was also given to do verse 9, to bring to light... To everyone, notice he goes from Gentiles to everyone. Why, why did he mention Gentiles specifically? By way of review. Because Paul was called by God's grace to be the apostle to the Gentiles. You'll find that in Acts 9. So he's specifically called to preach these unsearchable riches to the Gentiles, comma, verse 9 now, and to explain to everyone, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Now, a couple of words to focus in on. To bring to light. What this tells us is this. A servant of the gospel not only preaches the gospel, preaches the unsearchable riches of God in Christ, but he explains the plan He explains the plan for everybody. 
And, and this plan, we're going to find out in a moment, is that it's through the church that God will reveal the mystery of the gospel. See, this was the main mystery that Jewish people and Gentile people would now be brought together, not in Jerusalem, in a physical temple, which is what all the Jews thought for thousands of years. That's what their prophets had told them. But they missed one piece. Jesus would come and he would become the temple. No longer would God meet with his people in a building, but he would now meet with with his people in a person. That person would then create a new building, the church, The foundation being the teaching of the apostles. The cornerstone being Jesus. Chapter 2 told us that. This new building is also a body. So the metaphors are being mixed a little bit here. This is the mystery of the plan. Two people into one new man. One new humanity. The church. You and I are the mystery. I know some of you have often wondered about your spouse or your children. They are rather mysterious. More like an enigma. Quirky. Well, yes. But we're a mystery. We're a mystery far greater than that. We're a mystery that no one could have predicted, that no one could have created, but God himself. And this plan, in verse 9, this plan... That, that word plan is, is a very rich word. Bring to light to everyone what is the plan. It's the Greek word oikonomia. Oikonomia. It's the same word that is used, if you look at chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 2, just glance at there for a moment. He says in, in chapter 3, verse 2, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship, oikonomia. The stewardship, oikonomia. The plan, oikonomia. This is God's main ordering of things the plan god's plan and what's so amazing about this plan is that it's hidden for ages in god who created all things that's what verse 9 tells us the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in god who created all things now if you just peek into chapter 10 you will see that this plan is that through the church the manifold wisdom of god will be revealed do you see that well, I want to I drop into some biblical theology quickly with you. I, w- I want to give you the riches of, of Christ, the unsearchable riches of Christ, by taking you to two scriptures that will illustrate how this mystery, this plan was hidden in God from all ages, but revealed in Christ. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. This is an example of biblical theology of this mystery, this plan, that through the church, God would reveal the gospel. Through this one new man, God would reveal the gospel. I want to show you where it was hidden. That you you would have never seen it, apart from the revelation of God in Christ. Look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, Keep your finger there. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. And look at verses, let's start with verse 31. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Paul in Ephesians 5 is quoting Moses in Genesis 2.24. Moses wrote Genesis under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Paul, under the inspiration of the same Holy Spirit, is writing Ephesians 5, and he quotes Moses, but now the mystery will be revealed. Look at verse 32. This mystery is profound. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Here's the mystery. The church was hidden in God's heart from all ages back when the first man and woman were created before the fall. I don't understand that either. But I'm sure glad it was. 
Because Paul tells us in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that when God said that in Genesis 2.24, he was talking about Christ in the church because the, the church is represented by man and wife being married. So the, the marriage of Adam and Eve would represent the church. Adam would represent Christ. Eve would represent the church. And as the church, as Christ would serve and die for his church, so the man should serve and lay down his life for his wife. And as the church submits to Christ, so the wife should submit to the husband. But the mystery is, that's all to be a metaphor, a picture, a a, a living symbol of Christ and the church. Why do you think divorce is so rampant today? It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about God. Because we, in our marriages, preach the mystery. So therefore, Satan and and, and the world system and our flesh attack the mystery. They couldn't figure it out. Otherwise, they wouldn't have crucified Christ. It says that elsewhere in the New Testament. But once they saw it, they attacked the very institution that is meant to represent this mystery of God's love for his people. This is why Jesus said, I'm going to build my church in Matthew 16, 19, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This is why Jesus teaches us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, deliver us from evil or the evil one. This is why the book of Ephesians at the end, it ends with this incredible spiritual warfare of prayer against principalities and powers in the heavenly places. This is why in just a moment we're going to read that the church reveals God's plan to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This is a cosmic throwdown battle. And God's mystery is at stake. Think now public servants. Think back oath to defend the Constitution. There'll be people that die. We honor those people in our country. If you've ever been to Arlington National Cemetery, it's a moving, moving scene when you go there and see the tomb of the unnamed soldier and, and, and when they, that guard is there all the time. We honor people that lay down their lives for the sake of the Constitution. That's what they're doing. When they say for freedom's sake, it's for the Constitution. And so so the servant of the Lord, Paul, is is stuck in a prison in Rome. He doesn't know if he's going to live or die. If you look at Philippians, and if you think that Philippians was as well written while he was in prison, some say yes, some say no. But he says, look, I don't know if I'm going to live or die. I know for me it's better to die because I go be with God. But you know what? I think I'm going to stay here because I can serve you. He's saying, I'm happy to do it. I'm privileged to do it. Because what's at stake is the gospel, the mystery of God. And I'm a steward of it. I'm a servant of it. Are you? Are you? You see, look at verse 10. We're still in point two, verse 10. So that... So he's talking about he's going to bring to light to everyone, for everyone, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, comma, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, let me just tell you what this is not saying. This is not saying that we as the church stand outside and scream at the rulers and authorities and preach the gospel to them. That's not what this is saying. Now, there are plenty of places it says where to go preach the gospel. This passage, we are by and large passive. Look at verse 10 again. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. That's called the passive voice. It's be made known. If I were to say make it known, that's active voice. But be made known is passive voice. So what does that mean now? Here's what it means God is the direct agent, God picked the fight. Just like he picked the fight in Genesis chapter 3 after the fall. God said, I'm picking the fight. I'm going to make it known. And here's how I'm going to make it known. I'm going to save a bunch of disparate people. Jews and Gentiles. Cubans and Puerto Ricans and Dominicans and Peruvians and African Americans and and Anglos. And and high socioeconomic status and low socioeconomic status. And people from the south and the north and the east and the west. And all kinds of colors. And I'm going to save them by one way. Jesus Christ. And I'm going to break down the wall of division by one thing his blood, and I'm going to bring them together. And just the fact that they're together preaches and declares to the rulers and authority, your day is up, pal. It's over. We're now in the new age. We're in the end times. The clock is ticking. Back to exhibit A. That's why they hate the church. 
That's why they hate marriage. That's why all the problems in church, if you've ever been to a church and you've been hurt and you've been disappointed, or maybe you've hurt and you've disappointed in church splits, why are we surprised by that? It'd be like if I went to, into battle and, and, I, and they start shooting at me, I go, hey, they're shooting at me. They can stop shooting at me, please. It's like, buck up, buddy. You are a soldier. You are in combat. Why are we surprised when there's slander and gossip against God's leaders? Why are we surprised when husbands and wives have their biggest fights on Sunday morning right before they go to church? I mean, it's like synergism. You know, you get like two for one. Get them to not go to church and let's see if we can destroy the marriage. Let's get some backbone. Let's rise up. Let's, let's say, I don't have to do anything. Just show up. And it says something to the rulers and authorities. Jesus is real. His plan is right. That's what this is saying. We are not the direct agents. We are the secondary. We're the intermediate agents. God is the direct agent. We're just following our commander into battle. And his manifold wisdom is the gospel. And we come with the gospel, a multiracial, multicultural church. And it's glorious. Even though at times she's not so pretty. Oh, she's worth it. Do you love her? Are you committed to his plan? Are you committed to the church? God certainly is. And it's certainly his plan. Oh, I love this passage. I just want to read it to you. Just, this is part of those unsearchable riches, at least in my mind. It's all the way in Hebrews. Some say Paul wrote Hebrews. He may have. But listen to this. Hebrews 12, 22 to 24, talking about the church. Hebrews 12, 22 to 24. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God and the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all things, of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Oh, man. I don't know. I just, I love this kind of stuff. I mean, it, it's just, it stuff's happening. You know, this is like, a, that's why I like football. I mean, it's, everybody's just quiet until that guy says, huh! and then it's just mayhem. People, bodies flying, little, little individual conflicts over here, little subplots over there, and, 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 and key little things happening. And, God, and it's just, Wah! and then they blow the whistle, okay? And like, I love that stuff. I love that just burst of mayhem, okay? Uh, I'm still trying to learn soccer. I just don't quite get that one. I'm just, I think I'm just too American for that one. I love soccer as well, but I love the mayhem. And see, these kind, of, these kind of verses are like, look at what's happening here, man. But in the midst of all that, please know this. By you sitting in this auditorium, you can show the next slide. This is true. The very existence of the church... The one body of Christ, composed of Jews and Gentiles, reveals God's wisdom to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. You don't have to say a thing. You're speaking with your actions. When you give to the church, you don't have to say a thing. You're speaking with your actions. You are making eternal statements that will never come back void. You are making a statement. Forget about to your kids. That's important. Forget about to me. That's important. Forget about to your neighbors. That's important. You are making an eternal cosmic statement and you are saying, Amen, God. Amen, God. My life says, Amen to you. What does your life say? There is an amen. Will you join your voice to that chorus? The death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, followed by the creation of the church, ushered in a new age. And and this is the evil one's worst nightmare. This is why we are under attack, I believe, as a ministry, in Sovereign Grace Ministries. Are we faultless? No way. Are we sinners? Of course. But, I mean, the amount of attack, the vitriol, it's just crazy. Well, it's crazy because there's forces up there involved that are not human. I'm not freaked out by it because God's in control. God picked the fight. He's the primary agent, not me. I tremble every once in a while. (laughs) We're going in there, Lord? Yes. We're going to win? Yeah, eventually. Will I die? Maybe. 
Will I be, you know, chained to an ugly, smelly Roman soldier, metaphorically speaking? Maybe. But man, the glory's worth it, Al. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Again, I alluded to this in my prayer. Went to the prayer meeting Friday night with the youth. Really, really good. Yeah, I, 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 you know, drug my weary bones in there about 8 o'clock. I don't know, I was late. A whole other story about trying to buy a car to replace. Did I tell you I had a beautiful Lexus at one point in my life? Okay. Won't tell you any more about that. Did I tell you it's impossible to find a car like that in, in South Florida? <laughs> I've looked at a lot of them. And uh, just, dry, just drug my bones in. Just, just you know. It's hilarious because I'm sitting in the back and at a certain point David was leading Bush and he said, okay, we're going to just pray tonight. So isn't that something? We're going to have a bunch of youth get together and pray. Yeah, like all the youth ministry people are going, no, don't do that. You have a very small youth group. <laughs> and it was glorious. And I'm sitting in the back and, and David, I don't know, you know how it's like, all right, break up into small groups. Like no one wanted to be in my group. Like everybody just turned away from me. <laughs> So I'm just sitting there without hope, you know, rejected. <laughs> and here come Amber Sedano and Genesis Moreland, their crutches. They both have like broken feet, you know, because they smashed smash each other playing soccer. And I just went, great, I get the two cripples here, you know. <laughs> uh, and can I tell you something? The Holy Spirit of God fell upon our little group. And there were tears. It was hard to pray. There, there was a time where we, David led us through certain scriptures and to pray, and I just didn't want to pray. I, I just was quiet. I was like falling asleep. And there was, a, there was a certain moment, and God started moving, and actually he moved powerfully in one of those young ladies' lives, and, and I, I was undone. And then we'd stop and then we'd sing a worship song. By the way, Nathan, you did a great job of leading the, the band there and very sensitive to the spirit. The, you need to know these young men, you know, Nathan and David, I mean, you know, take a Friday night and joyfully are leading. And, and the spirit of God fell. Some of the youth shared some testimonies. I hadn't been in a meeting like that in a long time. I did nothing. I drug my tired bones into that meeting. And God did it but we were together. You get that? Point three. A servant of the gospel is not only one who's called by God's grace, not only one who's committed to God's plan, but a servant of the gospel is one who's conformed to God's purpose. Conformed to God's purpose. Please show the next slide. God's purpose is this. God's purpose is to unite all things in Christ. Things in the heavens and things on earth. So let's take a look back at Ephesians 1, 9 and 10. I remember when Corey preached this, did a great job. He made this very clear. Verse 10, perhaps, is the key verse of the whole book. But look at verse 10, verse, Ephesians 1, 9 and 10. It says the following. Making known to us the mystery of his will. There's that word mystery again. According to his purpose which he set forth in Christ. Now, verse 10, he's going to tell us the purpose that he set forth in Christ. As a plan, as a plan, I think that word might be oikonomia there, I think. I, didn't, I can't remember, but I'm pretty sure that word plan is oikonomia as well. As a plan for the fullness of time. Here's the plan, you ready? To unite all things in him. Things in heaven, things on earth. He's talking to the rulers and authorities in the heavenlies. Listen up, boys. And he's talking to all of us on earth. My plan is to unite everything in Christ. And here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to save a bunch of disparate people, a bunch of people that are different, and I'm going to bring them together under one head, unite all things in Christ. Christ is the head of the body. In one body, we are together, the arm, the hand, the legs. Let's all keep them together. Let's not be cutting our hands off. You know, that doesn't help. But everybody's together, one body, united under one head. And now look in verse 1, chapter 1, look at verse 19. Hmm... Maybe 22. Yeah, 22. Look at 122. And he put all things under his feet. That's Jesus' feet. We're his body. And gave him as head over all things, over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So man, this thing that we're doing this morning is bigger than you and me. It's God bringing everything together in Christ through the gospel under his feet. We are his feet. Does that, like, 
help you get here on time on Sunday morning? Does that like help us like pray, Lord, give me a word, give me an encouragement. Lord, let me be there. Let me sit, let me lean forward when this guy is preaching. Let me, let me give the best I can give. I'm going to bring my A game there because this is your A game. This is the plan. And what I love about it, going back to chapter 3, what I love about it, notice verse 11. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized, past tense, in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you get that? It's happened. This is that already not yet tension. This is the eschatological future, eschatology end times, breaking into the present. It's not happened perfectly. The church can look pretty motley. It can look pretty sorry sometimes. I can look pretty sorry sometimes. But the promise is that it's been realized in Christ and it's now being worked through in history. And there have been seasons when the church has been horrible. Think of the dark ages. But God superintended her all the way through. And one day there'll be a glorious ending. That's our hope. And that's why then Paul says in verse 13, Don't lose heart, Ephesians, at my suffering. You see that? Verse 13. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Don't lose heart, Palm Vista. What is their glory? Here's their glory. The suffering of Paul for the gospel will hasten the day of Christ's return. And when Christ returns, we will be glorified with Christ. It's all in the New Testament. What gives me hope to fight sin today is the glory I'm going to share with Christ tomorrow. And I share some of it today, but it'll be fully realized tomorrow. It's the already, not yet. It's the eschatological truths of the end time breaking into today. It's healing. Sometimes we get healed, sometimes we don't. But every time there's a healing, that's a little bit of that day breaking into today. It gives us hope. It's when I resolve a conflict by the gospel. It's when I trust God and have faith by the gospel. It's when I stand and see God work in a situation and a person I've been praying for for years. And I say, look, look, the glory is breaking in. Though though there's shame and tears today, there'll be a day with no shame, no tears, no no suffering. Mm. If you haven't already, blog or do Google on Smidgen Adoption Blog. Corey's posts are profound. And the one he posted, I think it was from yesterday. He, he takes the adoption and he makes spiritual applications. Oh, it's, it's the post where, where, where they have Lana standing at a window overlooking the city because she's never hardly seen anything but an orphanage. It'll bring you to tears. It illustrates this point I believe the text is making here. And because of, that, because of that glory that's to come, we're willing to, re, to take suffering today. Listen to this passage, 2 Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians 4, chapter, uh, verse 17, says the following. That is why... Yeah, 2 Corinthians, there you go. 2 Corinthians 4, 17, says the following. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, verse 18, but to the things that are unseen, these future things. For the things that are seen are transient. That means they're going to go away. But the things that are unseen are eternal. See, this is why we suffer. We're going to suffer. We're going to suffer, guys. The bullets are going to come because we're soldiers in a battle that God picked. This is why my friends, Patty and Nelson, recently suffered. I asked them if I could share this. I'm not going to share any details, but, but th- there was a real suffering that they endured for the gospel. It wasn't because they did anything wrong. It wasn't because of anything like that. It's just they were sharing the gospel. And they suffered. And it was difficult. They called me and they, we talked about it. And it, it, it was... Yeah, I, I, I wept with them. We're going to suffer. But what helps us get through it is the eternal weight of glory that awaits us, that we get glimpses of that Passages like this teach us. So we have faith. Listen, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. You don't need faith if you see it. 
And then the final point on this third point, third point, back to the third point. This final point in this third point, conform to God's purpose, is this. I love this. Paul, Paul suffers for the Gentiles in verse 13. Don't lose heart at my suffering. And then Paul is going to pray for the Gentiles beginning in verse 14. That is what my friend Bentley is going to preach next week. Look at verse 14. It says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. So Paul suffers for the Gentiles in verse 13. We also know in verse 1 he said, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus for your sake. And then he prays for the Gentiles in verse 14. Who, who, who does that bring to mind? Christ. Paul is simply... As simply a, a, a reflection of Christ. For it is Christ who suffered for us on the cross, and it is now Christ who now prays for us in the heavenly places. In our weakness, He gives grace. He prays for us. Romans 8.34, Romans 8.34, Romans 8.34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, there's the gospel. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Oh, friends, what I feel like God wants to say to all of us this morning is let's run to this gospel. Let us run to this Savior. Because He's going to give us grace. He's going to give us grace. And he's going to give us the heart to be committed to his plan, the church. And he's going to give us the grace to be conformed to his purpose, that our lives would echo his purpose. Listen, you want to know what it means to be a servant of the gospel? It means you make the gospel known. It means you understand God's grace. It means you're committed to the church. You cannot be a servant of the gospel if you're not committed meaningfully to the church. And I mean meaningfully, I mean you're there. You are serving, you are giving. That's what it means to be a servant of the gospel. And you're conformed to God's purpose to unite all things in Christ. Grace, dear friends. Grace. Undeserved. Wonderful. Grace. Let's bow our heads in prayer while the worship team comes up. Lord, as we are concluding this message... My prayer, Father, to, to you is that to my friends that are listening here, actually seated in this auditorium, and many, the many that aren't here this morning, Lord, that you would speak grace to them. The grace of this mystery. That it would captivate wayward hearts. That it would do what it did to my heart and the hearts of, of Amber and, and Genesis who were with me in that prayer group in the back of the room Friday night. It would, it would thrill us and captivate us and bring tears to our eyes and, and bring hope to our hearts and bring joy to, to, to lives that often see things that aren't very joyful, aren't very happy. We live in a fallen world. Lord, would your grace captivate us now? The riches of Christ would fill our eyes and our hearts and our ears. The unsearchable riches. Lord, that, that we might... Be committed to your plan, to your people, to your body, to your church, that we might be conformed to your purpose, all by your grace, your amazing grace. In Jesus' name. As we sing this song, I'm going to ask the, some of the home group leaders to come up and just stand with me here in the front. If you would like ministry, please come forward. Home group leaders, would you come up? Zeke, would you lead us? grace unmeasured. If you want prayer, if you're weary, just come on up. We're going to pray for you. We're not in a rush here. Please stand and uh, let's receive the ministry of the Holy Spirit.